Hello, everybody. Great to see you guys. Uh, if you missed the communion table in the back there, we're going to take communion tonight after the message. So go grab a cup if you didn't get one. Um, a couple announcements, too. Um, this month, it is this month. Yes, Kevin. Woohoo, indeed. Uh, the Sunday before Thanksgiving, if someone could help me out, I'm pretty sure it's the 19th, but if you know the month really well or want to grab your phone, I'm pretty sure it's the 19th. Thank you, Beth. I said that as like if someone knows their calendar, I was like, I bet you Beth knows exactly what day that is. Um, November 19th, we are not meeting at 5 o'clock here. We are meeting in the morning with Calvary Baptist at 1030. So we're doing a combined service on November 19th. And after, they have a, a long tradition of having a big Thanksgiving meal together with their church down in their gym. And we're going to join them for that Thanksgiving meal. So November 19th. Uh, not meeting at 5 o'clock, meeting with Calvary Baptist. Um, similarly, on Christmas Eve, it's a Sunday, and if you don't know what day that is, it is December 24th. Um, we are also joining with Calvary Baptist for Christmas Eve. Because it's on a Sunday night, we, we might have had a service on Sunday night that night, but they also have a tradition of doing their Christmas Eve service in the evening, and so we're just going to join together. The time of that service is yet to be determined, but I am 90% sure it will be at 5 o'clock just so we can keep it at our usual time for kids and such. So I know that there's probably like 100 things you might rather do than go to church uh, on Christmas Eve, but I would just love to invite you to make that a thing for you and your family or you and yourself uh, this year. If it's not normally what you do, just um, join us, and it will be really, really fun um, to join with Calvary Baptist. I think that is it. Am I missing anything, babe? No? Okay. Um, it's time to refresh ourselves on our mission and our vision as a church as it stands on our website, on our papers, and what it has been since we launched. Um, some of the stuff may be repeat for you if you've been here at, um, in the past when we've talked about this, but I, um, it was very powerful for me to, to rewrite some of this stuff and to look at it again, to look at it fresh. Um, and so I'm hoping that it might be for you, that if it's been a while since you've thought about it, uh, or if you maybe missed some uh, vision series in the past, um, that this might be helpful. Um, so that's what we're talking about, mission and vision. Uh, if you Googled those concepts as it relates to churches or just businesses, um, nonprofits, organizations, um, there is a lot of variance of what people mean when they say those two words, mission and vision. It's kind of funny. I remember in various contexts in my jobs in a church and then also in seminary, there's just a lot of conversation about what exactly those words mean. And it kind of makes me laugh when I think about it now. But I think the general idea, uh, those two words, mission and vision, articulate why you exist, what you think your goal is, and also what you hope will happen as a result of accomplishing that goal. And so the mission for us would be why we exist, what we do, what we're about. And then the vision is what we anticipate we will see, hence the word vision, what we anticipate we would see if or when or as we accomplish the mission. So I'm not saying that's the only way to understand mission and vision, but that's the way that we're um, going with right now. Um, our mission and vision from day one is this. Valley exists to be a family of missionary disciples who want to see God's kingdom come in Salem as it is in heaven. 
This mission and vision statement came from the network that we were a part of when we launched. It's called a Jesus Church Network. That network no longer exists, though the churches in the network still do. Um, there's just no official like network operations anymore, so we are on our own, guys. And we have been for a while. Um, the idea is that our mission, particularly a family of missionary disciples, our mission is to become something. So it's slightly less like action-oriented as some mission statements can be for churches or businesses, but um, we exist so that those of us who are part of this church will hopefully become a family of disciples who are also missionaries. Or to put it in another way, we want to do this thing together as a family, and as a family, we are God's people. We are his disciples who are also participating in God's mission in the world, or missionaries. And in doing this, in becoming a family of missionary disciples, I think that we are doing, it's like well encapsulates all that the church is supposed to do. If we're making progress toward that end, any of those three things, all of those three things, we're doing, uh, I think, a good job doing, us, doing what God wants us to be doing. Um, so that's the goal, becoming a family of missionary disciples. And if and when or as this happens, the idea is that we will taste and see and glimpse and function as God's kingdom on this earth in this little pocket of the world we live in. So to whatever extent the kingdom of God can be realized and actualized in the present, um, that's what we think will happen as we become a family of missionary disciples. So I'm gonna take approximately five minutes to talk about each of those three main words, family, disciple, and mission in that order. Um, and make sure that we're on the same page. Again, some of this may be repeat, maybe not. Um, starting with disciple. A disciple is probably one of the most Christianese words. I don't really know that you would use that word in any other context of your life. Um, but it is fundamentally, probably the best like, equivalent we have modern day is an apprentice. Um, which is a type of student that is following around and learning from and learning to do what their master or their teacher does. And so in the case of Jesus and his disciples, um, Jesus was a rabbi with a set of teachings and a way of life. And in order to be a disciple of Jesus, his followers had to actually give up their life as it was and physically follow Jesus around in whatever he was doing. And I'll take a moment just to plug the best resource I know uh, about the concept of discipleship um, that gives a picture of what it would be like. It's a TV show called The Chosen. Has anybody watched The Chosen? Um, I don't know how to talk about it without seeming like they're paying me to talk about it. They would never pay me for this. <laughs> but uh, it is just this, our cute, wonderful little church. Um, I would say it's a life-changing work of art. I don't know if that sounds like I'm overstating it. It's just one of the most compelling and profound things that I've watched that gives a picture of um, who Jesus is and what it would be like to be his follower. So if you want to know what a disciple is, maybe what it might have looked like in the first century, please go watch it. It is free. Um, there, end of the plug. The main idea of what it means to be a disciple is that we are physically present with the rabbi, um, that we would watch the rabbi, a disciple would watch and learn from the rabbi, and then also learn to do what they do as much as they could, and then with the goal of becoming like the rabbi. Um, this concept 
though we might all have heard it from Bridgetown and John Mark Comer, it comes from an author named, well, primarily Dallas Willard. He has a, big, a long series of books about what it means to be a disciple, and they are amazing. So I would, I'd cut right back to that source of Dallas Willard if you want to do some further reading on this concept. Um, the thing that we have to do today is figure out what discipleship means for those of us who don't live in the first century with Jesus as he walked on the earth. So I'm not saying it was um, easier to follow Jesus back then, but it was more concrete, less abstract. Um, so today, in short, we are with Jesus through the presence of the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised in the Gospels that he would never leave us, that he would always be with us, and that he would send his Spirit, uh, who called the Helper, the Advocate, to be with us, to make his home with us. And in that, in the Holy Spirit, in him, we experience the concept of being with Jesus like a disciple would. And we do this in a number of different ways, but the idea is just that we become aware of the fact that we can be with him. Right now, in this moment, as you sit in this pew, as you are driving away from church tonight, when you are sleeping, when you wake, when you're going to work tomorrow, in any of those moments, we don't have to go be somewhere else to be with Jesus. We can be with him in that moment or in this moment right now which requires remembering. And for us, in our, the pace of our lives and the amount of noise and things coming at us, we often have to intentionally slow down and quiet our minds and our souls and remember the truth that we are with Jesus. Um, and there are certain practices that can help this, certain types of prayer in general and certain kinds, silent prayer, listening prayer, intercession, praying through scripture, an old kind of like strategy or format of praying throughout the day called the daily office. These are things that we have talked about in the past, practiced together as a church, and maybe would be good to do so again as a church family. Um, so you're with the rabbi, and we do that through the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life now. Um, but we also, a disciple, watches and learns from the, the rabbi, the, his teacher. Um, we are not with Jesus uh, physically. However, we have a great vantage point. It was to watch Jesus through the scriptures. We might not be eyewitnesses, but we have a spirit-inspired and filtered account of those who were eyewitnesses um, and eyewitness disciples of Jesus. And so that's like the shortest and simplest way to say it is that's how we watch and learn um, is by reading the scriptures. Um, and so I think there's something to say for having a big portion of your diet of scripture be, being the gospels, just reading and rereading them over and over again. So the last thing, um, we're with, physically present with Jesus through the spirit. We watch and learn from him uh, like a disciple would through the scriptures. And then we learn to do the things that he did. This includes things that are like direct one-to-one -one correlations where he did a thing and we can also do the thing that helps us take on the character, the characteristics and the lifestyle of Jesus. So if we see that he practiced Sabbath or solitude and prayer or fellowship or simplicity, we go, I can do that too. I'm gonna do what Jesus did. The assumption is that like a real human being that Jesus was, his habits, the things that he had a practice of doing shaped him into the man that he was. And so we also can do that to practice the things that he did. Now, there may be some things that Jesus as the Messiah and God himself uh, did that we won't be able to replicate today. And so we just simply seek to emulate his character as much as we can, which brings back to the idea of being so steeped in the gospels that you know not just the like quotes of what he said, but kind of understand 
how he, how he was, what was, what was his personality and his character so that we can emulate him. Speaking of Dallas Willard, I read one of my favorite quotes from him recently in a book called The Divine Conspiracy. He says this, as a disciple of Jesus, I am with him by choice and by grace, learning from him how to live in the kingdom of God. This is the crucial idea. That means we recall how to live within the range of God's effective will, his life flowing through mine. Another important way of putting this is to say that I am learning from Jesus to live my life as he would live my life if he were I. I'm not necessarily learning to do everything he did, but I am learning how to do everything I do in the manner that he did all that he did. It's kind of a weird way of saying it. I think it is a beautiful way of thinking about ourselves as disciples today, not being able to be physically present with him, knowing that there are some ways that discipleship looked that it's not gonna look today, but we um, seek to um, live our life as if um, how Jesus would if he were us. So how would Jesus be as a spouse to your wife or your husband in this season of your life? How would he be as an employee where you work? What would he be like as a neighbor to your particular neighbors? What would he be like to, as a friend to your friends in your life? What would he be like to those who are not your friends that are in your life? So in other words, asking the question, what would Jesus do? It's coming back, guys. Let's get the bracelets. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing, is to view ourselves as, as disciples, um, to learn to become disciples. We're not believers. We are not employees. We are not observers or attendees of a service. We are apprentices or disciples of Jesus, active student learners who aren't just gathering information about him, but attempting to become like him. So the way that we plan to do this um, Uh, to create like a culture of discipleship, for lack of a better phrase, um, I think it just needs to be really normal for us, and this is an area I really need to grow in, uh, is that we are just constantly and humbly starting and restarting and learning and unlearning and trial and erroring the various spiritual practices that will help us become like Jesus. It's very easy for me to start trying something for a while and then it, it fades and then you're like, I don't wanna start that again if I'm not gonna like really do it again all the way. And I think we need to be okay with the fact that life makes it hard to develop habits like these, but we need to keep pressing in to doing the things that Jesus did so that we might become like him. And some of these things will need to be practiced and processed like in a, in a small group in your community or in another option if you're not part of a community, another um, smaller group of, of people from our church or people in your life that you're following Jesus with even if they're not part of this church. Practicing those things with one another. Some things are practiced alone with you and God but also hopefully still processed and celebrated and worked on in the context of a community of disciples that you're with. Imagine being a first century disciple of Jesus there, are, there would be some things that you would practice with all, all 12 of them and Jesus. When you were eating together, when you were praying, worshiping, reading scripture, you would do those things together. And then sometimes you would probably do something privately. Jesus would send you off to go be with the Father in silence or in prayer and, and uh, come back and kind of discuss how it went. And so I hope that we, um, I intend for us to continue to press in to these spiritual practices that will help us become more like Jesus as his disciples. Okay, disciple, done. Next word, family. While disciple 
is the word used to describe what a follower of Jesus is. He uses a, a different word, a different kind of image to describe how we are related to one another. Um, and that word is family. While disciple is maybe like a, a classroom or apprenticeship type of idea in our minds, we are not classmates and we are not coworkers. We are brothers and sisters. But not in the sense that you and I might think of that term uh, in our own kind of modern and Western sense of family. Family loyalty sort of exists today, but uh, children are encouraged, like it's expected that you grow up and you go to college and you move out of the house, you like separate from your family of origin, you get a job, you start your own family. It's the mark of success when that happens for you. Uh, that you become self-sustaining and you're still polite to your parents. You visit on holidays and you're uh, involved in their life a little bit, but you're really trying to kind of move out and away from your family of origin. And this is just totally foreign to the concept of a family in the first century. To, for us, it feels like we've failed as adults if we have to like go back to mom and dad and live in the basement or ask for money or help. Um, but this is just, again, a modern concept foreign to the time of Jesus would not have been a concept for them. So in the first century, their commitment to their family, blood relatives in particular, and particularly their brothers and sisters, was on another level than we are familiar with maybe sometimes to an unhealthy codependent uh, way, but their framework for thinking about themselves, their identity, their future, had everything to do with their family. Their success was about the success of their family. They derived their identity from their family. Whatever your family's like occupation or trade was, that was where you directed your kind of efforts and your future. An individual would make decisions that benefited their family, not just themselves, not just their own gratification or their own desires. And so when Jesus establishes family as the metaphor for how disciples relate to one another, it's not like how we think about our family. Even if you have a great family that you're, and you're close with each other, it's still not quite how we think about family. It's their highly collective, strong group, like your family is number one. That's the image of family that I believe is in Jesus's mind when he says that disciples are a family. And so it makes it very powerful when Jesus says in Mark chapter three, verse 31, Jesus's mother and brothers arrived, standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. And Jesus says, who are my mother and my brothers. The first century answer would be um, your mom and your brothers, Jesus, like the ones whom you share blood with. And he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. I don't know that we have a category for how profound that would sound to those listening at the time, and I think for us, because that um, we don't really have a category for how strong that would be, that family is probably the hardest and most countercultural part of following Jesus today. If we were to actually um, create that culture in a, in a church, um, particularly I think due to our evangelical roots, which kind of prioritize the the individual aspects of following Jesus. Um, it's so much so that like, if you met a person who um, attended church every Sunday, read their Bible and prayed every day, maybe like served on the greeting team or the coffee team at their church, could express some type of orthodoxy about 
Jesus, about the Trinity, about the Bible, you probably would say there's nothing wrong with this picture. Here, here is a good, solid Christian, which is true, but it's got a, a big problem that would be blaring to someone in the first century but isn't so to us, which is the question of how can you be a disciple in the traditional sense of the word without being wholly committed to and depended on by others and dependent upon others who are also following Jesus with you. So we have both of those two ideas of a disciple being someone who uproots their life to be physically near a rabbi. And then this rabbi says, you're my followers and you are also family. I don't, again, it's just an incredibly powerful way for Jesus to describe how um, close, loyal, committed, um, together that we, that his followers should be. But our our culture, um, as just modern individualists, and also I think some, some problems in evangelicalism have not set us up to do this well. However, I think as a small church, we are probably actually poised a little bit more ready to cultivate this sense of family because there's not hundreds of us in here. I think that we can actually do this. Um, and so here's the three things um, that I think we can cultivate to become family. These, I'm quoting them from an outstanding book called When the Church Was a Family by a guy named Joseph Hellerman. So these three components, we share our stuff with one another, we share our hearts with one another, and we stay, embrace the pain, and grow up with one another. So those three things, he says, are kind of encapsulate what is good and healthy and Jesus-like about a first century family that we would hope to embody as a church. Um, Where we view our belongings as belonging ultimately to the Lord, and therefore we can be free and generous with one another. I'm not talking about you giving to like the organization that is Valley Church, though that's fine and good too. I'm talking about you being involved enough and committed enough to one another that you're not only aware of each other's needs, but are willing to share and to meet those needs as a family. So we share our stuff, but we also share our hearts. This is also very hard to do. Uh, And I think it means that we just dig beneath the surface conversations about weather and work and being busy and being tired and which shows that we are watching right now. And we learn to meaningfully share our hearts and souls. Um, We learn to be honest and vulnerable about our weaknesses and our brokenness and how we, in this moment, need God to show up in our lives. Um, It's probably the hardest thing, again, to cultivate. It's very easy to... um, remain guarded and to uh, share with people the weaknesses and the brokennesses that are little that we're comfortable sharing. Meanwhile, there's something much deeper and more broken that's just like undoing us over the course of time. And I think those are the things that we need to learn to share with one another, which takes a lot of time and a lot of trust. And so that's why we, I, I'll just own this, personally have a very high value on being committed to a community. So we won't have you join one lightly if you seem like, well, maybe we'll be a part of one, we'll go when we can. Uh, The goal is that you would stick it out, like it says in here, that you would stay and embrace the pain of being broken and being friends with and family with someone else who is broken because that does take time and trust to be able to get to that point in your life as a Jesus follower. There's actually a little example of this, of... um, what I think could happen and does happen in our communities. Um, but it's, it's right here in the Bible, and I never saw it this way until the other day. Um, James and John 
uh, want to be seated at Jesus's right and left sides in the coming kingdom. It's actually their mom, which is awkward a little bit, who's like, hey, can my boys be your boys in the coming kingdom? And the rest of the disciples had experience, uh, I think, with these guys, with James and John, and their personality. And that was evident in what they asked of Jesus or what their mom asked of Jesus in this moment. And so the scripture says they were indignant. They were irritated by uh, what they did. There's the Zebedees again. They're just trying to like get ahead. They're trying to like move up in life and, um, you know, concerned about their status, trying to become more powerful. I think that these disciples were aware of each other's flaws, their deep flaws and their brokenness. They were around each other, committed to each other long enough to be aware of this. It had, it had surfaced because they did time and life together. And so Jesus has, uses this as a moment to teach them and help them, all of them, grow. So this is when he says in response to James and John's mom saying, hey, can my boys um, be on your le- right and left? Jesus says, that is how Gentiles work. This is Jesus' teaching moment, discipleship moment with them. That's how it works in the world with Gentiles. They throw their weight and their power around and they lord their authority over others. But this is not how my disciples should be. And then he says what we've probably heard him say before, if you want to be great in the kingdom, you have to be a servant. Because Jesus says, even I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life, give the son of man to give his life as a ransom for many. So the disciples' brokenness, at least these two, it came out as a personality trait of being zealous and hungry for status. It was brought to light in their community of disciples. And then rather than running away or ignoring or hiding or covering up or glossing over, Jesus got to dig in and use that moment as a way to help them become more like him. Unfortunately, we don't necessarily have Jesus sitting around our dinner tables with us able to say that thing. It actually has to be you being the voice of our loving Father to help shape one another, which is why it's one of the messiest things in the world, but also one of the most beautiful things that we could attempt to do. I hope that's how it could work with us um, as a church family, to commit to one another and embrace the pain and the countercultural nature of being vulnerable and allowing Jesus through one another to help us become more like him. Okay, disciple, family, you guys doing good so far? Last one, missionaries. Without a doubt, without a doubt, this concept has given me the greatest amount of trouble over the years when I think about this one. It is the topic I've read the most about in the last few months, um, not missionaries in general, but how does mission apply to a church? Um, Though it's the thing I've read the most about, I probably have found the least clarity about it. <laughs> uh, discipleship and family, there's some like really good resources. Uh, and there's just a l- huge divergence of thought and opinion on what it means for a, a, just a normal dude to be on mission as part of a church. Additionally, I would imagine that of these three things, family, disciples, and mission, is probably the thing that would give you the most anxiety or fear or maybe just curiosity um, when we ask the question, like, what does that mean for me? What am I supposed to do? So you think of being a disciple, and you're like, okay, an apprentice, a student, a follower, I, I understand that, I'm tracking. You think about being a family, you're like, yeah, that sounds hard, but also there's something about that that sounds like idealist, or ideal, where you're like, I, I want that, I wanna be a part of that. But then when I say missionary, you're like, what are we talking about here? Are we talking about like international missions, like preaching the gospel? Are we gonna have to like get up and go somewhere? Are we talking about building orphanages and water wells? Are we talking about going door to door in my neighborhood? 
Or can we just like repost stuff that a cool pastor shared on social? Um, churches are in crisis uh, where members want to be a part of a church where there's a culture of outward activity. We want to be associated with a thing that is doing things in the world, that is demonstrating its viability and its goodness, and that is visible to the world. There's a church in our town, which I love, called Outward. Uh, again, I love, love them, and, but I believe the name is a product of its time when it launched a while ago, that it didn't want to be a church that was about itself, because that would be the reputation at the time. The evangelicals were um, a holy huddle, kind of only caring about themselves, their people, their Bible studies, and their ministries. And so in their name, they have this desire to be a church that is outward focused. Um, but we're living in an age where it feels like the world is, is um, not just requesting that, but like requiring that, not just of churches, but businesses have to kind of demonstrate that they don't just care about their business, but they care about all sorts of other issues. So it, it feels like churches are being asked, uh, prove to us that this way of Jesus is good for the world. Show us that God cares for us and sees us. Um, and so Christians, we individually just, we feel that pressure. Um, but paired with that is another factor, which is um, over the last decades is the rapid increase of large staff-driven churches and the church growth movement, which all of us are a product of and at some point in recent years have been a part of. Um, the rapid rise of these churches where active church members at a smaller church become attenders of a large church. And the missions efforts of a church become something that is like relegated to a paid staff person to oversee. This, a, a person is a staff, it's their job, charged with overseeing um, what a church does or does not do when it comes to mission, to being out, outward, to doing outreach. And so someone on staff kind of oversees this, and then a church attender may or may not be part of whatever this um, pastor or staff member organizes. And so churches like this enter this scramble of what can we do that's going to get people to do something with us? What can we invite people to do that they're actually going to come and do? And so there's just so many um, ideas and opportunities to get a church attender to come do something besides just sitting in a church service. And it becomes about getting members to do what the church is doing. By the church, I mean like the staff or the church like as an organization. That's how, having been on a large church staff, that's how we talked was how can we get the people to do what the church is doing? which is kind of a weird way of thinking about it, if you think about it. And so there's a, just a whole lot of church-instigated and church-sponsored activity, which becomes missions. Kevin DeYoung, in his book, What is the Mission of the Church, writes this. Um, it, it used to be that mission referred pretty narrowly to Christians sent out cross-culturally to convert non-Christians and plant churches. But now, mission is understood much more broadly. Environmental stewardship is mission. Community renewal is mission. Blessing our neighbors is mission. Mission is here. Mission is there. Mission is everywhere. We are all missionaries. And I quote that not to say it's wrong, but just it captures like what I have felt and experienced as part of the church in the last 30-something uh, years. I was very much a part of it when I was two. Stephen Neal um, probably something that neither of us have heard of until I found this quote, uh, is an old British bishop, scholar, a missionary, uh, a missions historian. 
He said this, if everything is mission, then nothing is. He went on to say that if everything the church does is called mission, then we perhaps need a new particular word that describes the church's particular role in evangelism and disciple-making, which I appreciated. So I bring this up because um, it's a legitimate and I would say like a really profound and important question, a a debate maybe, if you will. Um, Are we primarily disciple-makers and evangelists? Or are we people that do that and also work for the renewal of our cities and our communities? Is everything mission or, or just some things? And circling back, who is supposed to do this? The church as an organization or you as a Jesus follower? I think the answer to all of it is yes. I think it is all of those things, everything. I do think there's room for churches to have priority. I do think that the priority is making disciples, telling people about who Jesus is and inviting them to follow Jesus with you. But then after that, there are so many ways that we can partner with God in his mission in the world, which is the renewal of all things. And we can partner with him in those things. I think those would be the things I was referring to last week, if you were here last week, that we would be a church that focuses on what I call quiet and invisible good works, which doesn't mean that no one can see them, but that we, like Jesus asked us to do, would do them humbly, not trying to make our, our work in the world known or seen by people, but just quietly obeying Jesus as his um, hands and feet in the world where he has us. Um, but the other thing to emphasize is that this is your work to do. If I could say each and every one of your names, I would right now. Uh, It is your, I can't, I know all of your names, but um, it is your work to do and and my work to do. Um, Christopher J.H. Wright uh, in his book called The Mission of God's People says, people don't go to church on Sundays to support their pastors in their ministry The pastor goes to church on Sunday to support the people in their ministry. And their ministry, the ministry that counts as mission, is outside the walls of the church, out there in the world, being salt and light. Um, There are some churches that will put a little sign above the door when you leave that says you are now entering the mission field. I think that's a great idea. If there's one thing about church culture, ours included, that I would change, um, it would be this that we, as individuals and also as a, as a church community, would view our lives as our mission field and not require or rely on an event that the church or staff outreach pastor organizes for you. That would be my goal. And that maybe when you sense that there's some work that God has for you to do in your community or in our, in our city, and you're like, I feel called to this and I would like to do this with some people. I don't want to do this alone. That you would just go and get people from your church family to do those things with you to take initiative. Um, there's this, I don't know, lack of a better phrase or a worse word, uh, in a, a document that I got in seminary from a teacher called the Metrics of Ministry. Um, he's a pastor in Southern Oregon and he described it as a very important mark of health in a church Um, as spontaneous missional initiative. Spontaneous missional initiative. This is where church members, unprompted by pastor or staff, obey God's leading in their lives 
to make disciples, to evangelize, and to do good works in the world as salt and light. This is the dream. Spontaneous missional initiative. And then additionally, I've, I've probably mentioned this either from the stage or just in my conversations with you, with some of you guys, but I love the idea of us being a church that prays frequently and fervently about how God would like us to be involved um, in our world, in our community, in our city, rather than me deciding, here's a decent missions or outreach idea, let's, let's do it, but rather um, we pray and maybe ask the Lord for something very specific, maybe even something for a season that we as a whole church might rally together to do. I think that would be a cool thing if we just felt like we heard from different people, but the Lord was saying similar things to us about um, something that he's calling us to. So um, to end this section on mission, I'll kind of recap by saying that idea of being a missionary disciple means that we participate in God's mission in the world, which is the renewal of all things, of all creation. And I think for us, the church specifically emphasizes the renewal of humans through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Christopher J. H. Wright, again, in a different book with a similar title called The Mission of God, says, mission is not ours, mission is God's. Certainly the mission of God is the prior reality out of which flows any mission that we get involved in. Or as has, as has been nicely put, it is not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world, but that God has a church for his mission in the world. Mission was not made for the church, the church was made for mission, God's mission. So, um, how we take steps, like what, are, what do we need to do as a church to create a culture where we are participating in God's work in the world. The first thing that I just felt so strongly compelled to do is to acknowledge and celebrate the ways that you are already doing this. I think it's very easy to feel like it's all we can do with your schedule and your life to just get to church on a Sunday. Sometimes that's really hard. Um, and it, maybe if you were thinking about this idea of being a missionary disciple, you're like, ah, oh, I'm not like doing much. I don't really know that I'm doing anything. Um, it's very likely that you are already. Um, and it's important to acknowledge and celebrate that. The things that we celebrate are the things that we will come to value together. Um, parenting. This is mission. Maybe, maybe one of the hardest missions that any of us have. Learning to be... Um, a good spouse so that your marriage is a picture of the gospel to those that you know. Being a, a good, humble, kind person, a student, a coworker, a family member, a sibling, a child to aging parents, being a good neighbor, this is part of mission. We have people here um, specifically who are foster parents or fostering to adopt. Um, people have ad adopted in the past. This is mission. Uh, we have people here who are em employed by or volunteer with um, various nonprofits which serve the poor and the hungry, um, children in the foster care system, people that are experiencing homelessness and others. Um, there are many spaces in our world and in our community where you are already um, on mission obeying this part of not just our vision, but God's for his church, that we would participate with him for the renewal of all things. And so I want to acknowledge and just celebrate that. Um, and I hope that you 
maybe right now or maybe as you're leaving would um, allow the Lord to like say well done to you. If that's a space, if you feel like he shows you where you are on mission already, that you would allow um, the Father to say that to you. Second thing is um, we need to, where and how we can, join and help those that are already invested in uh, areas of ministry in our, in our town. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. We maybe just need to recognize where God has already set up, what God has already set up amongst our people, places that you guys are already serving and volunteering and could use reinforcement in people to serve alongside you. And then the last thing, like I said, we just, we have to pray together um, and seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit on how he wants us to engage um, our, our community. Okay, family of disciples on mission. The last thing, almost done. How does our mission lead to our vision becoming reality? That's what we said at the beginning. We are a family of missionary disciples, and if our mission is being accomplished, it should lead to the vision becoming reality, which is that God's kingdom would come in Salem as it is in heaven. So how does becoming or living as a family of missionary disciples lead to in Salem as it is in heaven? It's a short and simple answer, but I think it is incredibly profound. And the answer is that a family of disciples participating in God's mission in the world is itself the kingdom of God. In other words, if we can successfully reject the pull to individualism and live life as a committed family that loves one another, if we reject all other lords and masters and ways of life and we follow King Jesus as our rabbi, and if we live as part of God's world, participating in his mission in the world, that is what it means for God's kingdom to come in Salem as it is in heaven. If I've learned one thing in the recent months of what I've been studying, it's that the kingdom is probably one of the most kind of confused theological buzzwords. We throw it in front of a lot of different ideas or work to like baptize it or give it significance. Um, we, can, we call it kingdom work or we're building for the kingdom or something like that. But the kingdom of God is the rule and reign of Jesus over a people in a place. So, when Jesus tells his disciples to pray, that's where the line comes from in Salem as it is in heaven. It comes from the Lord's Prayer. When Jesus tells his disciples to pray, to desire that God's kingdom would come on earth or in Salem as it is in heaven, he wasn't just referring to his people, these disciples, like um, righting wrongs in the world or fixing injustices, though that is part of it. He was referring to people gathered together as a family, living under his rule and his reign in alignment with his design, his desires. And so I think when we do that, that is God's kingdom come in Salem as it is in heaven. Now, it's not the full expression of God's kingdom, obviously. It's the taste, though. It's the taste that we get to experience. It's the now, even though there's a whole lot more uh, not yet to come in the new heaven and the new earth that is coming. Um, I've mentioned that I've, I don't know, been on a, a journey of learning a lot of different things about the purpose and the mission of the church, what it means to be a disciple. Um, and after what I've read in this last season, what I've studied and kind of processed, I can honestly say that I really, 
really like and believe in this mission and vision. And I say that with humility because I did not write it. Or I say it confidently because I didn't write it. Um, I didn't come up with it. But I think it is beautiful and it captures what we are supposed to be, what we're supposed to do, who we're supposed to become. It should inspire our imagination on all that God can do, wants to do in us and could do through us as individuals and as a church family. And so the plan is that whatever we do as a church should in some way be driving us towards one of these three things, towards becoming family, towards being more and better disciples of Jesus, and towards participating in God's mission in the world. And I think as we do it, we are living in the process of God's kingdom coming in Salem as it is in heaven.